Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. As a guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days in the field. This show is about translating my hard-won experiences into tips and tactics that'll get you closer to your ultimate goal, success in the field. I'm Remy Warren. This is Cutting the Distance. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's November. It's prime ruts coming on for a lot of people deer hunting starting to kick off some of the best time of year to chase deer is now and i get really excited about that last week on the podcast we were talking about gear and going over a little bit of gear so now we're going to switch gears and answer your questions on this week's mail sack so far i've already had a great season been guiding a lot of elk hunters last week we had uh, five hunters in camp killed five bull elk and one guy had a deer tag as well so and a deer. You can't ask for anything better. Um, I don't know if you heard that shot. I got some guys here sighting in their rifles. So if you hear some random shooting throughout this, it's uh, I'm not a war correspondent. I'm just a lowly hunting guide here and uh, trying to record a podcast in between taking people out. So we're going to jump into it right now. We've got questions that need answered. But first, let's go to some testimonials. First message comes from Ryan. He says, hey man, wanted to say a quick thank you. My whole life, I've had the itch to make the transition from whitetail hunting on my family's farm to western big game hunting. But with not knowing anyone who does the seemingly daunting task of taking the first steps, I always put it off. However, since listening to your podcast, it has given me a truly incredible amount of information and has finally pushed me over the edge to start the journey. So I wanted to pass along and encourage you because what you're doing is incredible. I appreciate that, Ryan, and thank you so much for all the other people that sent out messages um, for encouragement and uh, just saying how how much the podcast has helped you kind of get out there. A uh, lot, of, lot of success 
testimonials this week as well. This one comes from Bridger Smith. He says, listen to all your podcasts this summer and fall. Love the tactics. Called in my first archery bull. Thanks for the inspiration. And it's a great bull. Good work, Bridger. This one's from Jeff Beller. He says, was chasing a larger buck in the area for a few weeks, but he did what big muleys do, disappear. After nearly walking the dog into the ground, I couldn't help myself on this buck. Kept checking the pockets and it paid off. Thanks for the advice for staying persistent in thick, hard-to-hunt areas. Jeff, with a good, nice, typical 4x4 mule deer. Awesome work, Jeff. Is that 4 Yeah. Yeah, that's a great buck. Last testimonial comes from Brian Sowell. He says, ended up taking this bull using some of your tactics on your podcast. This is the first bull I've ever harvested, General Tag in Montana, and it is a giant six by six. So, Brian, congratulations. Listening to the podcast pays off. I can, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know if this is pudding, but I've been getting message after message of guys sending me something saying, this is the first elk I've taken. This is the first, the biggest bull I've taken using this tactic. So thank everyone out there. Thank you guys for sending in those testimonials, the pictures. I really enjoy them. I like to always read a few here. Um, and now we'll go into a few questions. Maybe some other testimonials will pop up. I got these questions uh, just on my phone. So we'll, we'll start running through some of your questions here and we'll get into it. Since last week was a, a gear episode, I did get quite a few questions on gear. Let's start with this one. This question comes from Dave. He says, hey, Remy, love the podcast. Please do a moose hunting episode. I've got a lot of requests for that, so that'll probably be in the in the works here. It says, my question for this week's Q&A is how do you stay comfortable hiking in wet environments? If I'm marching uphill, I overheat, and the rain gear makes it that much hotter. How do you keep cool and comfortable when it's too wet to take off outer layers? How do you layer to hunt in wet weather? Um, and he's saying, P.S. When I say wet, I think coastal blacktail moose swamps wet. So that's a great question. When I'm in like really wet country, I know it's going to be wet from sun up till dark. Or even if I know it's like, hey, it's it's probably not going to let up or it's I'm starting out. Maybe it just rained all night and I know it's going to start out, start out wet. And I know I'm going to be hiking. I actually will just wear my rain gear and um, I won't put it over like pants or something like that. So I'll have my rain gear on and if it's cold, I'll throw thermals and then rain gear. So it'll just be like a base layer shirt, rain jacket, and it'll be um, maybe thermal pants and rain pants. I've even just gone rain pants, nothing else. Um, well, underwear, keep from the chafing. But um, I, I found like, actually that's the best way because it kind of stays cool. Uh, now, what I will do too is like if it's not raining, but it's just like wet country, I can then often vent my pants. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll wear like rain gear and then I'll put some uh, gaiters over the top of that, give it a little bit more protection, keep it from dripping into my boots and other things. So I'll put my rain gear on and then my gaiters over the top of that. And then, um, and then I can, you know, use the zips to regulate my body temperature. So even when I've got just very light and I'm hiking, I'll start to unzip the jacket if it's not raining, if it's just like wet country where everything kind of seems wet. Now, when it's raining and everything else, the only way your rain gear is going to work is if it's tight. So I always, one thing to think about just added info here is when you've got your rain gear on, use your hood. Like if the hood's not up, the rain gear is not going to work. If your wrist straps aren't you know, like I tighten it around my wrists as well. So the water doesn't run down and then, you know, don't obviously keep your hands down or whatever in your pockets. One thing I also don't like to do in wet weather. One little secret I've got is I'll put hand warmers in my pocket and then I won't wear gloves because when my hands get wet, 
then the gloves get wet and I just would rather just in wet weather, put my hands in my pockets to warm them up with those hand warmers and then keep them from my gloves getting soaked. Uh, but the layering system that I do in really wet country is I just go straight up rain gear. Uh, it's waterproof, it's breathable, and the breathing works a lot better when you don't have two layers on underneath it. So I just go base layer or light layer underneath or no layer underneath and then rain gear. And if I get cold, I just start moving. Um, it feels pretty good. I've been in some, you know, even when it's a little bit warmer out walking through that cool, wet water with just the rain gear on, it almost feels, it, it's just kind of like feels pretty cool, especially if you don't have base layer on underneath it. So it just goes straight rain gear, keeps your base dry. And then if I've got um, if it dries out or whatever, I could have my other stuff in my pack and then just swap it on later, change it out. So once it gets dry, say it's not raining or I mean, it dries out during the daytime, then I'll swap out if I need a jacket, then I'll swap out the rain jacket for say like a soft shell jacket. And that's the way that I like to layer in really wet places. But like I said, on the gear podcast, you know, start out cool. This is a good one. This one comes from Ricardo. He says, hello, Remy. I just listened to your latest podcast about rule number one. Don't leave anything on the ground. And I laughed hysterically. I'm currently driving to the bow shop because I left my bow on the ground and ran over my bow with my truck. That tip hit my soul. Have a great day. Thanks. <laughs> that's, um, that's very unfortunate. I, uh, I have once run over a spotting scope and uh, I know I feel the pain, man. And it was on a coos deer hunt a long way away from anywhere and uh, i i actually the spotting scope still operated but the tripod was destroyed so um and that still wouldn't hit as hard as a bow so <laughs> man bummer but also a testimonial of don't leave stuff on the ground rule number one all right this next question says hey remy love the content when's that elk video coming out on the biggin anyway i was gonna take uh, my little brother-in-law on a mule deer hunt. I have a two-two-three he can use with 64 grain soft tips. Would that be reasonable to shoot one within 100 yards? If so, what shot would you take? High shoulder or just the sweet vital shot? That's a great question. So the first part, the big elk video is actually... Good timing is actually out today. So you can go over to, uh, you can find it through, go on my Instagram page. I've got a link to it there or the made with meat, uh, YouTube channel. It'll be there. And then I will also on my YouTube channel, put it on a playlist. So if you follow my YouTube channel, you can go there and it'll make it easy to find in a playlist there. That big, that my largest bull, um, got the video edit done. It's ready. And I think it turned out pretty dang sweet. So hopefully everyone goes over there and checks that out. Okay. So now on to hunting with the two, two, three, 64 grain bullet soft tip, you know, I'm a big proponent of not overgunning people that are especially smaller. So he says here, your little brother-in-law, um, the two, two, three. Yes, you can absolutely kill a mule deer with a two, two, three. How do I know? Because in New Zealand, I have shot red deer, which are about the size of elk with two, two, threes. Um, we actually used to meat shoot with them as well, like shooting commercial meat shooting. But on that, we would do all, all headshots. Um, however, I have seen like taking kids or whatever and, and taking some pretty large animals with uh, triple twos, 223. So, um, yeah, absolutely possible. I would, I would definitely probably say stay away from the shoulder um, because I've found animals that we've taken later on with small caliber bullets in the shoulder. 
So I would just go with the sweet vital shot. Um, a, you know, a, a good bonded type bullet would be best. I would say there there is a lot of like, you know, in DG3, you can get some really like more frangible rounds. I would definitely get a more hunting built round for it. Uh, and that just, you know, just kind of think about that when you're looking at it. There is there is a difference in the price of the box. Um, but yep, a good soft point um, would probably work fine. Just something that uh, it depends where you're at. But um you know, if you can use, you know, a, a bonded soft point or something like that, um, get one that's designed for hunting and it'll absolutely be plenty of gun and you won't overgun your brother-in-law. So I think that that's a great option and go for it. This question says, Hey Remy, in regards to late season spot and stock mule deer hunting, what do you do when the bucks spend very little time in one spot, typically either chasing a doe uh, that's hot or on a doe's scent trail, particularly in those spots where the stock can be long and arduous. Tim from BC. That's a great question. So many of the places you're hunting, if you, if you can hunt that late rut season, especially when it comes to pre-rut, bucks are cruising and you might see a buck three, four miles away and he's just moving. He's on that trail. Or like you say, he, he gets into a zone where he gets a hot doe and it's, it's cruise city. In those kind of scenarios, it can be really hard to get on the deer that you're trying to watch. So I do a couple different things. I mean, one thing is you can keep watching and see where he goes, or you can say, okay, how can I cut this deer off and get into that particular zone? Um, there is kind of this thought of you might not catch that buck that you see. Uh, and so what I would like to do is like, if I'm seeing a lot of cruising bucks, I almost would put myself into a position where they tend to be cruising through more often than not. You'll notice like th there might be a, a place in the mountain where you're looking and watching over and you can see all this country, which is really good for spotting, but it's not good for putting yourself into a position for that stock. Now, I tend to prefer to cover more country with my eyes. So I'd probably pick that spot where, Hey, I'm, I'm watching cruising deer, but I'm going to pick that spot with the hopes that I'm catching that deer that can, that will stop. I had a similar experience with this just a couple days ago, spotted a good buck. I was like, ah, oh, he's cruising. But then I, I looked over and saw a pocket of does. So I just watched, I was like, all right, um, I'm just going to go, you know, if, if I was, I actually didn't have a tag. I was just scouting for clients, but it's like, all right, if I had a tag, I would just go to that pocket and see what happened. And sure enough, later on that buck hit that pocket and started doing his like hot laps around those does checking them all. So if I would have made that stock and moved to that pocket, the wind was good. I, you know, I'd seen those does downwind of him and knew that he's cruising and he's going to stop when he sees those does. So understanding where those doe pockets are can help you pinpoint a deer that's going to slow down. Uh, that's one way to think about it. Another way is, um, you know, if you've got like a buck that's chasing a hot doe kind of going back to that. Like if he runs that hot doe off, sometimes they'll go for miles, but many times that doe is going to try everything she can to kind of get back to that group. And so kind of getting back once again, kind of stalking the does and then using that as the magnet to attract the bucks might be your best bet. Another option is just watching that deer. Many times I'll see a cruising buck and he'll be cruising, 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 like seems like he doesn't stop. And then he hits a an area and he just stands there for 30 minutes or whatever. Once that deer, hits that standing point you might think okay now i can make my move so it can be difficult but there are things that kind of slow them down and so i try to focus on those things and then make my move based on that 
otherwise I kind of set up and do my glassing in an area where it's like, okay, I, this is a high concentration of where they might be moving. I'm looking over a lot of country, but when you see one here, you can make a quick move. And there's been many times during the rut that my stock is not a slow stock. It is an absolute all out run. And, uh, and then just trying to get set up with rifle hunt, you know, get set up maybe where I still got a good view, but I, I shooting across the canyon or something like that. So that's kind of your options. Question comes from Kent. He says, sorry if you stated this before in your podcast, but being from Texas, I've never had a chance to do a true backcountry hunt and want to next season for elk. I know that doing public land requires getting back further and farther than usual. Uh, what would you recommend to make it easier, especially with getting a bull out, taking two friends or trying to find a location that allows something like an e-bike? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, here's the thing. I, I wouldn't even consider those things mutually exclusive. I do... When I el hunt elk, I never, th and maybe this is the wrong way to think about it because I've done it a lot. Like, I've, I don't even know. I've probably packed out. I, ca I couldn't even count the amount of elk that I've packed out or animals um, or in the thousands. And I have this philosophy that it's like, I never think about how, I mean, not that you shouldn't be prepared for it, but I'm like, I never choose a place worried about the pack out. I just hunt and then get the animal out afterwards. And it's just always a pain in the ass, but um, it's just part of it. You know? So one thing that I would say is like, it's, it's a good idea to be prepared to pack it out. And especially on your first one, having some people with you is never a bad thing. I would say if it's your first trip, either way, the having a couple extra people is going to make it a lot easier. Like you can, you can share in the toil, you can share in the experience. Um, absolutely take two people with you. Now I'm saying that to say that having an hunting an area where it's like, Hey, I've, I've got the option to take an e-bike in or whatever can be part of your hunt plan. That doesn't necessarily have to involve like be saying, well, I'm either going to take the e-bike or I'm going to take two friends. You can do both. But if you have the two people, no matter where you get the elk, you've got help packing it out. So you can go back as far and then you can hunt with that mindset of not worrying about how I'm going to get it out, but hunt and then get it out. And you just got to know that that work's going to be involved. Now, I know people are probably saying like, oh, well, you got to make sure you can't shoot something where you can't get it out. That's absolutely true. So you wouldn't want to go beyond your limits, but having those two people, you won't have to think about it is what I'm saying. Like you can just go out and hunt and you know that you'll be able to get it back. And so I like that option. I also like the idea of like, Hey, it's never a bad idea to, you know, find, find other ways to access areas. So if it's, you know, hiking in on a logging road where you can go like, okay, hey, I can get in here and then access the area and, and bushwhack up here. Great. You know, if you can use an e-bike, great. Like that part doesn't matter. That's just more of like the hunt strategy and planning, like how you're going to get into the area areas you're going to look into access. But if it's your first trip, I would just say, take a couple guys with you, have a good time. It's a little bit safer that way. Like you can, you know, it might keep you more motivated to, to hunt harder if it's the guys with kind of like a like mindset. And, you know, if everybody's got a tag too, it might give you more opportunity to experience like a successful harvest in a pack out. If, if everybody's got tags and maybe they split up and then you come back to camp and you're, however you're going to do it, it's never a bad thing to have, um, some help. I remember, uh. Many years ago, I was doing a solo hunt and then my uh, buddy, Mike, helped me pack out. And I said, and I, I think one thing that I said, and it just rings true in pretty much every hunt is even a solo hunter makes a great team packer. Like no matter what, if you can get help packing out, take it. It's great. Question comes from Tom it says, Hey, Remy, big fan of your podcast. Love your content and how you break everything down. What are your thoughts on bipods, shooting sticks, or tripods? 
Also, doing my first late season blacktail hunt in November in Washington. Any tips or suggestions? So the first part, um, I think all three have their place in some way or another. Uh, when it comes to shooting, I always like to be field ready. And I think field ready involves being able to get steady on whatever's around. Uh, the first thing that I always try to get steady on is my pack, laying down using my pack. Uh, if you have a bipod, that works great. You just need to be, no matter which one you use, practice with them all. If you're, if it's going to be something that you're going to hunt with, practice with it. And not necessarily just saying like practice shooting with it at the range. That's kind of, I mean, that's just like part of it, but I would say that's the smallest part. I would, I would much rather prefer to see people like getting out, hiking around with whatever they're going to use. And then you don't even have to shoot. Maybe it's dry fire practice where you just get set up and pick something like, okay, I gotta get on, get on that fast and see which one works for you. In a lot of situations, bipods are very difficult to get steady with unless it's the right situation i would say out of all of them i throw a bipod on many times and when you use a bipod and have the right set setup it's probably the most steady thing you can get now if you have shooting sticks uh, it can get you a little bit higher up so you can get above some of the brush and grass it's not going to be as steady as being proned out on your pack or on the bipod but um, shooting sticks kind of give you that upper hand of still being steady while maybe being more advantageous to different uh, say hunting scenarios. I like as opposed to shooting sticks. I actually use my trekking poles. I talked about this in the last one, but use those trekking poles as a shooting sticks that works really well. Or just, I mean, I do have a pair of shooting sticks that I, I bring along as well. And then tripods. Yeah. It's like getting steady on anything you've got. So if you already got a tripod there, practice getting steady on it. The way that I use a tripod, I'll, I'll extend the legs put the um, like spotting scope down and then set the gun in that kind of arm between the spotting scope and the tripod. The worst part about the tripod is it's not super adjustable. Um, so I would say between all three of those, the one, if I was to carry one, I would say carry shooting sticks because I can find ways to get steady with the other, without the other two by using my pack or using the tripod that I have. But um, shooting sticks kind of give you that kind of in between. That's a lot faster movement. So that's what I think on that. When it comes to late season uh, blacktail tips, you know, I guess it depends if you're hunting more of that uh, jungle type country, temperate rainforest type stuff, or if you're hunting, you know, more open stuff. But uh, late season is is kind of like it's very similar to mule deer, and I will also say very similar to whitetails. Um, blacktails are kind of that perfect in between where they have those smaller home ranges, so you can pattern them, you can use trail, like you can use. Um, waiting tactics like tree stands and other things on trails in that thick country. But one thing you're going to want to focus on is definitely focus on those does. Bucks will be more apt to cruising later in the season. And that's going to be your best time to find deer moving around. So don't forget to glass those clear cuts, those openings where you can actually see, and then finding that, that good sign in those trails. Probably I'd focus on like places that deer will cruise, like actually like finger ridges and, and those ridges in the timber where it's a lot easier for them to walk around and move fast. Just like anything, you know, if, if you think of a buck's cruising, looking for does, he's walking along, trying to scent a doe and he's going to take the easiest path. You know, there's times where they might be in that thicker stuff, but if they're moving around, find those trails that are easy to move on where it's like, Hey, this is a natural way that I would move. Um, and then where it's like, they can cover a lot of country and be moving for does and then kind of hunt still hunt do however whatever your tactic of hunting is or bush stalking sitting waiting whatever um, based on those areas where they're going to be moving more often 
question comes from Ivan. He says, hey there, I'm about to go on a mule deer trip up here in BC. What an awesome coincidence. You recently did some podcasts on the topic. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations on calls to use. Thanks. Uh, when it comes to deer calls, lately I've been using the uh, Rocky Mountain Game Calls grunt tube. It's got like this slider bar on it. And so I, I find it works better than the rest, everything else I've tried. Because some of them, like the other ones I've used, they kind of stick when it's cold and freeze, especially if you're like up in BC or northern Montana or whatever. Um, it's like a lot of those calls kind of freeze up on you. And I like this slider bar because I can change the tone. So I can go like that more deep, like deep grunt, or I can even just do like a, an estrus bleat, like a kind of sound um, with that same call. It's got like a great tone and I think it, it carries really well. I use that same call for whitetails, mule deer. Um, I've actually even used it for bighorn sheep. So I, I really like that call in particular. Um, I'm sure you can find it online. I can't, I wish I knew the name of it, um, but it's got like this little on it in, it somehow got like some little slider thing. That's kind of, I guess like a trombone slider, you know, but it's built into it. So it changes, it puts different pressure on the reed inside the call. Uh, that that's the one that I recommend. And then when it comes to rattling, I mean, it's just anything um, I've used. I like to use like big mule deer antlers. Sometimes, sometimes I use just shoulder blades that I've taken off of something dried out. Uh, sometimes I use like a rattling bag or whatever, just something that's easy. I found that the like plastic rattling antlers uh, don't really work that well in the cold. Like I, I've had them break a lot. Maybe it's because I, I, tend like if they're outside a lot or something, I don't know. I've had a lot of those break. Um, so I've kind of got away from those, but, um, any kind of like small rattling bag, there's like this, ah, shoot. It's like this little rattling box that I've used worked. Okay. Seems like just sometimes bringing a set of mule deer sheds seems to be like the best or deer sheds for whitetails and mule deer. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology 
your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. All right, this question comes from Scott. It says, hey, Remy, just listen to your latest podcast about gear. I was surprised to hear you like the smaller spotting scope. Me and my buddies utilize a pair of 10 by 42 binos and a 25 or 30 magnification rifle scope, depending on setup, and bring a 65 millimeter spotter. What's your thoughts on that setup? So here's my thought on that. The first one, the 10 by 42 binos, awesome. The 65 millimeter spotter, great. The 25 to 30 magnification rifle scope, I would never use a rifle scope for spotting, glassing, verifying anything. Um, I just don't think it's good practice. And I mean, that's, and I, and I also don't think it's like a very great tool for verification. Like, yeah, you get a little bit more magnification, whatever, but you're just better off like using your binoculars and your spotting scope. Um, I have been in the field and like had people like walked up on people that don't even have binoculars and they just use their rifle scope to verify something that's absolutely unacceptable i I mean i'm not saying that that's what you're doing maybe you're like oh it's a deer and maybe it's something you can legally shoot at but i am so anal about gun safety that that gun whether unloaded whether the bolts out whether it's anything should never be pointed at anything that you don't intend to shoot at any time ever and so like there's been times where i've been walking down the trail someone sees movement and i've they've got their gun pointed at me and i'm like that freaks me out and i get pretty pissed off and i and i let them know about it um i've seen people glassing other people with rifles across the ridge or glassing you know like using rifles to to look at things and it's like that should never be a way that you do anything ever um and i think that just bears repeating of like i mean whether that's how you use it or not, doesn't really matter. I just think it like is something good to talk about. Um, that you, we have rifle scopes for shooting the gun, and that's what it should be for. We have binoculars for glassing and finding animals, and we have a spotting scope to zoom in and verify. So if you got the spotting scope, just use that and just use the binoculars. Now, um, I would much rather carry the weight of a a large spotting scope than use plan on using a rifle scope to check something so that's my thought on that uh, i think the binoculars are great i think the spotting scope's good um, and it's also you know having that spotting scope for a little bit extra verification is awesome now if it's something you're lining up to shoot and you're like oh there's a good buck i i've got a tag for it i, I might want to shoot it and you're using the rifle scope to, to check it out see if you get ready get your shot whatever that's all cool but never use the 
you know, you never, I never think of using a scope as a more verification on something because we have better tools for that. This question says, Hey, Remy, big fan of your work slash podcast. I like your transparency and drive. I've been hunting coos whitetail in Arizona for about 10 years. I've got three smaller ones, but can't get over the hump and kill a nice wallinger. I'm not even archery hunting, just can't find the big bucks. I hunt October, which is not the most ideal time. Uh, no rut slash can be hot. I hunted harder last week than I ever have. Tried to find isolated areas of food, water, shelter than glass and make stealthy approaches into high probability areas by incorporating wind sound site. Not sure what I'm doing wrong. I use 12 by 50 uh, Vipers. Is the Binoc too cheap to hunt effectively? I spot deer at 1,000 yards, but couldn't tell if they were bucks. Granted, I'm sure if it was a monster buck, I probably would have noticed. Anyways, I'm not a pure trophy hunter. I just like the meat, but at some point would really like to get on a big public land coos. Thanks for your time, Danny. That's, that's a great question. Uh, I do love hunting the coos bucks. And I will say this. So we were just actually talking about spotting scopes. I, on a coos deer hunt, that's a, that's a hunt that I take a good spotting scope on. Um, I glass with it. I get, I use it for verification. Um, you know, seeing those deer at a thousand yards, you got to be able to zoom in tight because during that October season, those bucks are not moving. And, uh, you know, what, what you see, sometimes you got to be able to get really tight in that like cover in that, where they're hanging out in those holes that they live in and really, really pick it apart. Like, inch by inch because i've seen the best bucks i see that time of year it's um it's really really picking the the country apart and being able to zoom in and say okay that's what i'm looking for that's that's a good buck sometimes even just zooming in on something that might not be a good buck and you'll find a good buck now i will also say in full transparency if you want to kill a big coos deer during that october time frame but you're only i guess quote unquote looking for them in October, then you're doing yourself an injustice. The way that you would kill a big coos deer is by putting in more time outside of that hardest time to find them. So if you're, if you're like, I mean that to say that to kill a big coos deer buck, it's going to take more time outside of that October time. So you can pinpoint where that big buck's living. And then when it's October and they're like in their holes, you know, that buck's home range. I would say that, you know, starting out, going out in January, it's going to be like a, you're going to have to put in a lot of time outside of the season when you're hunting. January would be when I'd start and I would go during the rut when the deer are out and they're cruising and whether you're archery hunting or not say, okay, there's a big buck here. Then I would continue that on through the summer when they're in that velvet phase, it's hot, you know, but you're, you're going to be able to pick them out and figure out, okay, here's where that buck's living. And then before they kind of like in that September phase as well. So it's going to be kind of like a year round endeavor where you go out, you understand like, okay, this area has a high population of big bucks. I see them here. I'm, they're rutting, you know, as long as it's not an area where they're transitional moving from like a big high mountain down to the low stuff during the rut you say like, okay, here's a, here's the area that these bucks are in. I know that there's a big buck there because you don't, you got to be in an area where big bucks live to shoot a big buck. Start number one. So you're going to find them when it's the easiest time to find them. January. Then you're going to go back and try to like pinpoint that deer because what coos deer do is they, they actually have a fairly small home range. Like you might even find that that buck in September, like 
when he's out more, you just find that buck and you're like, okay, he likes to bed here. He likes to bed there. He likes this kind of Canyon sweet. And then when that October time comes, like when it's the hardest to find these bucks, when there's a lot of people out, when they're pressured, you're like, you can go and you can really just get in that spotting scope, get in those binos and just pick it apart because you know that you're spending your time looking in an area where that buck probably is. And you can really focus in on that that thick cover kind of stuff. And then you can, you know, hopefully pull out that buck that you've already located and know like, this is where he's at. This is his zone. Now I just got to find him. And I would say that that's going to be the way that you're going to be most successful taking a, a big coos deer during that time of year. And the same goes for, I mean, really anything, uh, big mule deer can be like that as long as they aren't super transitional. If it's more of like a, a buck that has a home range and they're you know, they, they don't cruise a big distance, but coos deer, they've got, like, I would say a, a mile radius, maybe two mile radius that they like, and that's their zone. And so if you can pick them out in the summer and then kind of learn that buck zone, even year after year, you're going to just start, like, you're going to start rolling into big buck after big buck by just knowing that area so well and knowing where those deer are before the season starts. This question uh, I actually really like because it hits home for me. Um, I'll tell a little story here in a second, but it comes from Nick. He says, hey, Remy, had a mountain lion take a deer just yards from the house. They have been getting too bold over the past decade, but especially in the last couple of years. As you are well aware, options for hunting lions in Oregon are limited. But most of our lion uh, trail cam photos are in daylight, and we usually get one on camera within six to eight weeks. I hear that lions in this area run circuits that can take roughly two to six weeks. I've never hunted lions, and I'm intimidated by the idea that they might only be coming through once every two to six weeks. What tips do you have for lion hunting when focused on one location? The cameras help a bit and add a few pieces to the puzzle, but are not enough alone to pattern them. Are there some rules of thumb for patterning lions? Love the show. Sincerely, some dude from a brush patch in Western Oregon. Uh, that's a that's a great question, and I say that's a great question because uh, just last night I had a lion kill a buck whitetail, like essentially I don't know, ten feet from my cabin. Um, I could I woke up and I was like I heard, and I'm like geez what's going on? And a cat killed a deer right behind me there. Um, it's not the first encounter or first time I've had cats doing the same thing. Uh, we can chase them with dogs, but not this time of year. I've had, uh, I've probably, I've had a lot of deer killed just, you know, within a spitting distance of where I sleep. <laughs> so, um, I think that one of the things that I've found, one weird thing that I've found is like they're, they tend to be more concentrated in the winter time. Like they've got that smaller range, especially if it's really hard to decide what those cats are doing, where you're at, not knowing enough about the area. So I don't know how, how big the property is that you've got you know, access to hunt if it's just like a small neighborhood plot or if it's like, you know, you've got public land and then it comes in your private and they're just killing the deer because they're concentrating in like your yard. Uh, that's kind of what happens for me. So it's got um, a big area where they roam, but you know, sometimes the deer concentrate here, but also got some really thick stuff. And I tend to find that they, the cats seem to be like clustered up in some of this stuff certain times a year. Um, they do move through, but it's also crazy how tight they'll hold sometimes. I guess really the number one thing I would do is if you've got a kill, um, you could hunt off that kill or like 
hunt the cat as he's coming and going to the kill. Another option is waiting for snow. If you can't hunt with dogs and you can't do whatever, your only option is spot and stalk, then tracking them yourself. I've actually walked down quite a few cats myself. Um, you know, generally they jump up pretty close. You could use, uh, I'd have maybe two different types of ways of shooting, like a shotgun or something if it jumps up and runs because it's kind of in the brush a little bit. Um, or you know, just going slow and glassing as well, but waiting for that fresh snow, cutting that track, then following it. As far as finding the pattern, it'd be really tough to do unless you have more information. Um, but I will say one thing I have noticed is I find a pattern, not necessarily in like looking, because I've got the same thing where it's like, hey, I know that these cats are coming through certain times. And what I do is I just, I keep all the data in one spot and then I go and look back and it's almost, it's like crazy how within the day or two days, it's like this certain time cats start coming through and you can kind of look year to year. It's like, what's this pattern overall? And sometimes you got to kind of just step back and say, when you're trying to pattern certain animals that seem kind of unpatternable where they've got these really big circuits saying like, okay, well, how often is this cat coming through? But like, look at it from year to year. Is it, is it coming through like, and then start to piece up together, like look over historical data of what was the moon doing then? What was the weather doing then? What was, was it a dry year? Was it a wet year? Was it a year where it's like, Hey, maybe it's a, a really dry year. The deer, higher concentrations of deer on your property and they're coming through kind of uh, it when there's no moon or they're coming through when it's a full moon, you know, kind of deciding those kind of things and looking at those patterns and trying to decipher, okay, well, when are these cats moving through and when's going to be my best opportunity to try to pinpoint where they're at and when to hunt. And that's, that's what I kind of gather from that. we got one more gear question here. It says, uh, Q&A question. I'm looking to purchase my first bow. I'm looking at a one-piece recurve, something classy and deadly. I'm expecting to spend some money on this, so I want to make sure I purchase exactly what I'm looking for. My question is, I'm right-handed and comfortable shooting my rifle right-handed. The problem is I'm left-eye dominant. When I shoot my buddy's bow, naturally I shoot right-handed. Should I buy a bow left-handed to cater to my dominant eye and learn to overcome the awkwardness, or should I buy a right-handed bow and shoot with my less dominant eye? Uh, I'd really love your input on this big dilemma for me right now. Thanks, Remy. Keep crushing, Eric. Uh, that's a great question, Eric. I've got it. You know, if you go through a lot of the Q and A's, I think I've answered this question in one form or another many times. But I, I it bears repeating. Um, I would, I would get the one left eye dominant. Um, I would, I would shoot the bow left handed, especially if you haven't really started. I think for a couple of reasons. I mean. When when I talk about like bow shooting, you know, you're shooting for your eye dominance. Well, shooting a rifle right-handed, you're you're bringing the gun to your right shoulder. You're controlling the weapon with your right hand, which makes sense. You know, your right eye. I mean, it's for your dominant eye, but it's also easier to control the weapon if you're right-handed as well. But think about shooting a pistol. You shoot a pistol with your right hand. Well, why would it not be more easy? Like easier. I mean, it's, it's like using your dominant hand to control the bow. If you were left eye dominant and right handed, it's actually not a bad thing because you're controlling the bow with your dominant hand and drawing back with your non-dominant hand to your non-dominant eye. So in many ways, it's actually better um, to shoot a left handed bow or, you know, to your left eye dominance. Now, if you're already kind of accustomed to shooting a bow the other way, it could be very difficult to train yourself. And in which case, I don't really know the answer, you you know, but you're going to be a lot better shot, especially um, 
with the traditional bow if you can uh, shoot to your dominant eye. So I would say that. And then as far as uh, gear goes on like a solid recurve, I definitely look into you want like a really classy piece, go for a stalker stick bow. I like those. He makes some South Cox makes some incredible bows. So that's one to definitely check out. That's like a piece you can pass down for generations. In my opinion, um, does a great job with them. So I would definitely look into that. And I would also, I mean, also think about possibly doing a, uh, takedown recurve of some kind as well. Um, that's just my suggestion. Cause I have a one piece one and I'm like, man, it's hard to travel with. So it's nice to have a takedown, but you know, different strokes for different blokes. Last question comes from, uh, Federa says, uh, Remy love the podcast. Um, the questions deal with hunting big mountain whitetails out West or Eastern Washington. The area I hunt is steep mountains with lots of ridges and draws. Is there a mix of clear cut selective logging and dense forests? Um, they, the, First question says, I see a lot of deer, but almost all of them are groups of three does, two yearling deer. Is my area a whitetail nursery? Is there such a thing as a nursery? And if so, will bucks come to the area where I should, where should I spend my time to bag a big buck? And question number two says, do you ever use techniques like drags, uh, drags, estruses, estrus calls, grunts, rattling, decoys, et cetera, while whitetail hunting out West? Uh, That is, oh, actually, sorry, this was... I sent it from his wife's account. So it's from Sean. Uh, great question, Sean. Um, and I'll tell you what. So the first thing, yes, there is such thing as a nursery. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, the other thing is maybe the deer where you're at just, um, you know, like how do you distinguish where does are going to be from like where does and fawns are. And that can be difficult. I will say, yes, bucks will cruise through there, but they probably won't hold. So if you're pre-rut hunting, you're definitely going to find deer, you know, checking those areas where there's does and fawns. Um, and if there's a lot of does, then you're going to find a lot more bucks. And then there, if there's the occasional doe, it's like, okay, here's a pocket with more does. It's just like anything during the rut, the does will attract the bucks. And so hunt the does. Uh, now question number two, calling techniques, going to have to tune in because we're going to be doing a whitetail, Western whitetail calling episode here shortly. So check back in next week. I think I'll do it next week, but remains to be seen. So for the answer to question part number two, if you want to know some Western whitetail calling tactics, you are going to have to continue to listen to the podcast. Appreciate everybody tuning in. That concludes our mail sack for the week. Uh, Thank you guys so much for sending in your questions. I appreciate every question out there. I hope that um, answered it and maybe somebody else had that same question. So thank you guys for, you know, stepping up, being the ones that raise your hand in class and say, hey, I got a question on this um, because it probably helped everybody else. So I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening, tuning in. Stay tuned because coming up, for the rest of the month, we've got some late season tactics. Like I said, maybe some white tail, uh, calling and rut stuff, you know, white tail, there is a lot of white tail deer hunting still out West and maybe some tactics you could take back home to wherever you live, uh, when it comes to calling deer. So we'll stay tuned for that and best of luck, everyone keep the questions coming and how are we going to end this one? Uh, just get out and hunt, just get out and hunt.
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. 